Despite all of the advances in medical education and news coverage and social media, I, I just can't understand how in 2023 we're in this position with congenital syphilis. I mean, it's mind-boggling. I, I don't understand. We're doing this taping on March the 2nd, 2023. And just yesterday, on March the 1st, 2023, a story broke on CNN that is calling attention to this terrible condition that we're struggling with here in the U.S. The title of this CNN medical release is Rates of Congenital Syphilis are Skyrocketing in the United States, and here's why. We're going to cover some of this information in this episode, but what happened? I mean, how do we get here? According to the CDC records, listen to this number. Over the last decade, there has been a 700% increase in the cases of congenital syphilis. Uh, Let me just say that again, because that's hard for me to wrap my mind around. Not 7%, and I didn't say 70, 700%. Now, you're like, that's just not possible. No, no, if you look back prior to the decade, it is actually 700%. Now, some states have increased a mild 180%. Some have increased 250%. And when you take a look at those high-volume states of congenital syphilis, specifically in the South, we're going to cover all of this in just a minute, over the decade, it is 700%. Here's what's weird. This has been around forever. It's called the Great Imitator, right? This is no surprise. Syphilis has been around since antiquity. And it's treated with one of the oldest and cheapest antibiotics out there, penicillin. How are we in this position? So I know it's a topic that gets talked about a lot, but apparently we're not getting it because this is still an issue. So in this episode, I want to cover the scary state of syphilis. Now I want to focus on three publications. Two of them are out. One hasn't even come out yet. All right. So let me give you these references right off the bat. One is coming out soon from Elsevier's Women's Health Issue Journal. This was accepted at the end of 2022, and it's already out ahead of print. It's an article in press as of January 2023. The title is Congenital Syphilis in the Medicaid Program, Assessing Challenges and Opportunities Through the Experiences of Seven Southern States. You know, thinking, well, wait a minute, why are they picking on the South? Because that's where syphilis mainly is. Now, it's all over the country, but the South is just killing these numbers uh, in terms of skyrocketing rates. And we're going to get into that. The second publication uh, is just more recently from December of 2022. All right, so December 2022 just came out in print now three months ago, and that's from the Gray Journal. The title is Syphilis in Pregnancy, the Ongoing Public Health Threat. That's under expert review. And the third publication that we're going to review is ACOG's Clinical Expert Series from May of 2020. That's appropriately titled Syphilis in Pregnancy. Uh, We're going to combine these three publications together to do a very high level, very in-depth, but very thorough review of congenital syphilis, what to look out for, when we should should be treating patients. I'm going to tell you what I'm specifically shooting for uh, in in 2023 and how we're trying to tackle this issue in Texas, because I'm very proud of this initiative through the state legislature, but we've got to do better. So if you just saw the title and you're like, yeah, syphilis, man, I kind of know, RPR, VDRL, I get that. No, 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 it's a problem. This is a huge issue still in 2023, and we're going to tackle the scary state of syphilis right now.
just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well, let's start out with something totally not medical, but I just think it's interesting. Ever wonder where medicine gets some of its names? I mean, it's interesting, right? Some of that stuff is Latin derivatives, some of that's Greek, and some of those are poetic characters, like syphilis. The name syphilis actually came into common usage after a play that was written by Girolamo Francotoro of Verona. Yeah, it's a play. So in this play, this character named Syphilis kind of offends some of the Greek gods. And short of it is, he, the Greek gods plagued the land with this terrible disease uh, that was basically penned after Syphilis. I mean, Syphilis goes around uh, and causes this wide devastation by passing around this plague. So Syphilis is actually the name of this character by this ancient play by this author who was a physician and part-time astronomer and poet of Verona. Again, that author was Girolamo Francatoro. All right, let's get back to business. In 1999, the CDC actually published a national plan to, quote, eliminate syphilis completely, end quote, by 2005. And that's because around the late 90s, syphilis was actually at the lowest rates ever reported. So the government and health agencies were like, woohoo, hey, we did it. I mean, syphilis is almost gone. And that's one of the problems. You see, once something gets a lot of attention, we attack it as a people, as human nature, and we, we solve the problem, and then we forget and we leave it alone. Well, what has happened since we've left it alone, it's come back. And it's come back with a vengeance. So how did that plan work out? We're going to eliminate syphilis completely by 2005. And again, they did great for many, many years. But really, since 2010 and on, there's been a slow, steady increase in the rate of syphilis throughout the entire country. Syphilis is bad whether you're male or female or pregnant or not. But during pregnancy, it's especially harmful to the child. Maternal syphilis is associated with a 21% increased risk for stillbirth, 6% increased risk for preterm delivery, and 9% increased risk for neonatal death. We're going to get into this a little bit further down in the episode. But you see, it's not like you can just have a baby that's born and go, hey, this baby looks fine. Whew, he dodged that bullet because surviving newborns with congenital syphilis can actually present years after birth with symptoms. So this is something that even if the child looks okay and it's difficult to test for in the newborn, we'll explain that in a minute, but this is something that can appear weeks or even years after birth. And this can include things like bone deformation, severe anemia, an enlarged heart or spleen, blindness and deafness, and even meningitis. So just because the baby looks okay, if the mom had recent infection and wasn't treated, ideally within 30 days before delivery, that child is not out of the woods. 
despite many calls to action and national programs calling attention to this issue, rates of congenital syphilis, meaning the number of cases for every 100,000 live births, are still highest in the South and the Southwest. And there's some states that are driving this the most, like Arizona, New Mexico, Louisiana, Mississippi, and my home state of Texas. This is according to new data from the CDC. Oh man, because I live in the geographic south, I mean, I just hate to say that. I mean, but it's absolutely true. I mean, as an overall region, the south is doing terrible in regards to congenital syphilis. The CDC states that it's gone up between 2016 and 2021. That rate of congenital syphilis has gone up 432%. Now, individual states have seen some increases that are more eye-popping than others. From 2016 to 2021, cases shot up over 3,000%. Yeah, guys, that's not a joke. 3,000% in Mississippi, nearly 3,000% in Oklahoma, more than 2,000% in Hawaii, and more than 1,800% in Washington. It's also hit New Mexico with a 1,600% rise. And believe it or not, even Wisconsin has a 1,500% increase in the rates of congenital syphilis. Guys, I can't even, I can't even fathom that. I mean, over 3,000%? What is happening here? Now, you're like, how does that get that high? Well, remember, numbers had really dipped down for a while. And so when you look at the nadir and then where we are currently, I mean, the highest tract really is 3,300% in Mississippi. That should just make you stop and take a breath and go, why is this not on the news every single day? I mean, this is a huge issue and we've got to do better. Now, for those of you that live above the Mason-Dixon line, all right, don't drive in your car or if you're jogging, listen to this and go, see, that's what the South gets. Wait a minute now. <laughs> Wait a minute. Uh, I love this country and I know there's some regional preferences, uh, but can we all just get along? Because even Maine, Maine, you know where Maine is? Check out the map. Maine, that had been one of three states to have been freed of cases over the past decade, yep. It's even hit Maine because it's reported its first congenital syphilis case in three decades just in January of 2023. Yep, Maine, you get good lobster and apparently you can also get syphilis. How did we get here? I mean, why do we have this terrible bounce back in the rates? Well, the truth is it's not one factor. There's a lot of them. That article from December of 2022 from the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology from the Expert Review series, and the title, remember, was Syphilis and Pregnancy, the Ongoing Public Health Threat. It lists four main issues. But then the new article that hasn't even come out yet, remember, that's the one from Elsevier, lists something else that's very intriguing, and it's true, and and it's something that we may not be able to control unless we do more universal testing. But I want to get into the first four from the American Journal of OBGYN. See, according to these authors, according to the data, and what they found were the gaps in congenital syphilis and prevention for this was first a lack of timely prenatal care uh, with no timely syphilis testing. I mean, if you don't get any prenatal care and just go in and deliver, uh, obviously you're going to have a higher chance of getting congenital syphilis. We're going to talk about transmission rates uh, and probability and percentages in just a minute. The second reason is lack of timely syphilis testing despite timely prenatal care. In other words, oh, I don't want to offend, uh, you know, Miss Smith because, you know, she's a well-to-do lady and I'm just going to not offer her syphilis testing. 
uh, wrong. Please check everybody. <laughs> it's universal screen, no matter what color, race, what kind of food they eat, what they call themselves. Check them for syphilis. The third reason given in the American Journal of OBGYN is a lack of adequate maternal treatment despite a timely syphilis diagnosis. In other words, oh, hey, uh, Miss X, your lab came back. Oh, my goodness, uh, you've got syphilis. You need to come back. And then they no-show. So that's a gap in care. The fourth reason given is late identification of seroconversion during pregnancy that's identified less than 30 days before delivery. In other words, somebody comes in to establish care, uh, and then two days later they deliver. That's a lot of my patients. And if they haven't had any prenatal care at all, and they're like, hey, I was told I was due two days ago. Um, okay. Uh, and then you find out that they're positive, and then you get them treated. But by that time, they've already delivered. There's a window of antepartum treatment that's successful to prevent congenital syphilis at time of delivery, and that's 30 days before delivery. So if you miss that window, there's a higher chance of congenital syphilis. And then in this new article that's coming out soon uh, in Elsevier and Women's Health Issues, um, there's two things that, that are super important, especially in the South. One is access to care because a lot of patients just don't have any kind of coverage. They fall into the gap. Uh, and the second that's tied to that um, is the issue of immigration because there's a high immigration uh, immigrant population, of course, and some patients don't have any resources or may not have had prenatal care. They cross the border and then deliver. Uh, and so those two are big things that we just, it's hard to fix. I mean, getting more coverage with, maybe it's Medicaid expansion, I don't know. Uh, and then the second is, is the influx of immigrants that may not have had a chance to have proper prenatal care uh, and, and that's tragic. So just throwing those things out there as why we're in this gap, um, but it is fixable. That's the good news. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You know, I learned this thing about syphilis when I was in med school and they taught me wrong. And I'm really kind of upset about it because they kind of put this thing like in a line, right? And for the most part, that's correct. I mean, you get infection and then you draw that little line, right? Starting from the left, move that straight line over to the right. And that's like progression. Uh, and so the first thing after inoculation, you have the primary chancre. That's, you know, first stage of syphilis. Uh, that's totally correct or primary syphilis. And then you move a little bit more to the right and you get secondary syphilis. And then you have this little gap of latent syphilis. Then there's a little gap and then there's tertiary. But I learned that after tertiary, there was another stage, which is neurosyphilis. But that's not right. Neurological manifestations of syphilis can occur at any time during the course of infection. It's its own separate thing. So if you think about that line from inoculation to the left and then tertiary syphilis uh, on the far right, neurosyphilis should kind of be a banner on top of that line because it can happen at any stage of syphilitic infection. So don't think that neurological syphilis is something for really end stage. Uh, it can be, but it can happen at any time during the course of infection. Now let's focus on congenital syphilis because that's our main focus in this episode. Congenital syphilis can result from maternal syphilis infection that happens before or during pregnancy. The risk of fetal infection is actually related to two things. The stage of maternal infection, 
meaning congenital syphilis occurs in about 50 to 80 percent of women with untreated primary, secondary, or early latent syphilis, compared with about 10 percent of women with late latent syphilis. And then the other factor that affects transmission to the child includes the time during gestation from which the infection occurred. Although transplacental passage of T. pallidum can occur at any time during gestation, it occurs with increasing frequency as gestation advances. Let's further discuss this whole issue of vertical transmission real quick. Just as a clinical pearl, remember that vertical transmission can occur in all stages of syphilis and across all trimesters. But the highest risk is observed with early syphilis compared with later stages of syphilis, even latent syphilis. And although T. pallidum has been isolated from fetal tissue as early as nine weeks of pregnancy, sonographic evaluation for infection can't detect any changes until after 20 weeks of pregnancy. This is when the fetal immune system is now able to generate the robust immune-mediated injury response for the observed ultrasound abnormalities. So remember, if somebody is diagnosed with syphilis early, don't expect any changes until 20 weeks passes where you can see some changes by ultrasound. Transmission of syphilis in utero starts with placental infection that's followed by widespread dissemination to virtually every organ system. The most common ultrasound abnormalities seen in decreasing order of frequency includes hepatomegaly, that's about 80%. Then there's fetal anemia that's evident by elevated peak systolic velocity of the middle cerebral artery, that's about 33%. There can be an enlarged placenta or a thickened placental mass that's called placental megaly at 27%. Polyhydramnios occurs in about 12%. And then ascites or fetal hydropes, which is the most severe kind of change, happens thankfully only 10% of the time. Splenomegaly and cardiomegaly have also been reported, but it's much less common and tends to be more on the rarer side. If a patient is found to have syphilis and they're greater than 20 weeks, then they definitely have to have a detailed anatomical survey. Fetuses with detectable ultrasound stigmata of syphilis are considered severely infected, and when they are treated, they're at higher risk of having the Jarex-Herzheimer reaction. They're at higher risk of going into preterm labor, having fetal heart rate decelerations, having an intrauterine fetal demise, and of course having treatment failure. So these possibilities have to be discussed with the patient when they're found to have syphilis and are being treated for the first time greater than 20 weeks of gestation. Remember that the Jarrett-Herzheimer reaction is an acute systemic reaction that can occur during treatment for syphilis. This reaction results from the rapid killing of spirochetes, causing release of copious amounts of endotoxin, lipopolysaccharides, prostaglandins, and cytokines, and this leads to an acute inflammatory response. Reported symptoms of the JH reaction include worsening of skin lesions if they're present. They can have some temperature instability like height fevers. They can have chills, tachycardia, arthralgias, uh, pharyngitis, headaches, and even leukocytosis. The Jarex-Herzheimer reaction is more likely to occur in early syphilis than in late syphilis. Rates of Jarex-Herzheimer reaction in non-pregnant patients have been reported to be from 95 to 100% in primary syphilis, 60 to 90% in secondary syphilis, and about 50% in syphilis of unknown duration. 
clinical manifestations appear about two to eight hours after treatment initiation and pretty much are gone by 24 hours. So the treatment is mainly supportive. So it's important to tell patients, especially if they're being treated, remember, greater than 20 weeks, hey, if this thing happens to you, you got to go into the hospital just so we can give you IV fluids, some supplemental oxygen, and make sure that you're safe. The use of corticosteroids has not been shown to prevent the Jarek-Hirschheimer reaction, and that's not recommended. Even though we know the rates of the JH reaction occurring in non-pregnant individuals, the rates of its occurrence during pregnancy is a little bit more unknown. Two studies have reported on the incidence and clinical manifestations of this reaction during pregnancy. In both studies, the Jarek-Hirschheimer reaction was reported in 40 to 45% of gravidas undergoing treatment. When broken down by stages, this reaction occurred most frequently following treatment for primary and secondary syphilis and syphilis of unknown duration. Now, this is in contrast to treatment for late latent syphilis, where no cases of the Jarek-Hirschheimer reaction were reported. So at least that's good news. The symptoms of JH reaction during pregnancy have been the same as that for non-pregnant individuals. However, preterm contractions and fetal heart rate changes that we just discussed are more likely to occur in the second part of pregnancy, in other words, greater than 20 weeks. And in those that have severe fetal manifestations, remember we just covered this, those are the ones that tend to have more likely adverse reactions, including preterm labor or even stillbirth. So it's not benign. So the first thing to do if you find this after 20 weeks is to get that pre-treatment ultrasound, do kind of informed consent and say, look, you need this treatment. I mean, it can literally save the child, but the reaction to this treatment could be severe. That's why it's advised to do this in the hospital setting, although you can totally do it as an outpatient, but the very conservative option is to treat them and kind of watch them for several hours in an inpatient setting. Although, let me be very clear, there's nothing wrong with doing this as an outpatient. Even though the first injection is recommended to be done during labor and delivery observation for both maternal monitoring and, if indicated, fetal monitoring, it's okay to give subsequent doses in an outpatient setting. Evidence is clear that treatment of syphilis during pregnancy improves pregnancy outcome and helps prevent transmission. When compared with non-infected patients, untreated gravidas are 12 times more likely to experience stillbirth, preterm birth, and congenital infection. Remember, the risk of congenital syphilis correlates with stage of syphilis and the gestational age at both infection and treatment. Treatment should be given as early in pregnancy as possible shortly after the diagnosis is made. Benzathine penicillin G is the only recommended treatment for syphilis during pregnancy. Remember, benzathine penicillin G is the only option during pregnancy. It's 98% effective in treating maternal infection and 98% effective in preventing congenital syphilis. This is why this is so heartbreaking. I mean, we can do something about this. We just have to get the word out and be diligent to do universal screening. Remember that treatment of syphilis in pregnancy is still based on clinical stage of disease. But unlike the non-pregnant patient, where the patient can go up to two weeks between injections before it's considered off the algorithm, it's different in pregnancy. Currently, the CDC recommends that multiple doses of penicillin G only be given 
nine days apart at max. So in other words, if they fall off the algorithm and are delayed more than nine days, then the entire treatment regimen has to be restarted. So that's a clinical pearl. If you're not pregnant, you can get a shot every week. Uh, but within a 10-day to 14-day span, you're still considered okay and you just continue on. But if you're pregnant, you have to treat within seven days and no more than nine days. So if a patient no-shows, uh, and shows up to you 10 days from the last injection, sorry, they've got to start all over again. All right, so non-pregnant, it's weekly with a span of 10 days to 14 days, still considered okay by some. I only do 10 days, but some consider two weeks to be totally acceptable. CDC says that's okay. But if they're pregnant, they cannot go more than nine days between dosages of penicillin if multiple dosages are recommended. After complete treatment, non-treponemal titers should be followed to ensure a fourfold decline. For example, a non-treponemal test like an RPR should go from a titer of 1 to 64 down to 1 to 16. The amount of time allowed to achieve this fourfold decline for a non-treponemal titer differs according to the initial stage of syphilis. The CDC suggests this following timetable to allow the fourfold decline. For early syphilis, it may take 6 months to 12 months. For late syphilis or syphilis of unknown duration, that could take up to 24 months. And if the patient is HIV positive, that could take up to 24 to 26 months regardless of stage of syphilis. If a four-fold decline is not observed after those time frames, then treatment failure or reinfection should be considered. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Clinical manifestations of congenital syphilis are divided into two characteristic syndromes. The first is early congenital syphilis, and then the second is late congenital syphilis. And that makes sense, right? Early congenital syphilis is diagnosed within the first two years of life and may involve clinical symptoms similar to those in adult secondary syphilis. Now, classically, this can include things like hepatosplenomegaly or desquamating skin rashes, rhinitis or the snuffles, anemia, thrombocytopenia, and osteochondritis can also be seen. Children with infection can also be asymptomatic at birth, but years later develop the sequelae of late congenital syphilis. Diagnosed after two years of life, late congenital syphilis is characterized by notched teeth. Do you all remember that from med school? That's Hutchinson's teeth. It can also include deafness and interstitial keratitis of the eye. All three of these together are called Hutchinson's triad. So remember, congenital syphilis that presents after two years of life can present as Hutchinson's triad that hits the main things of the face, of the head, right? So you've got deafness, that's the ears. You've got interstitial keratitis, that's the eyes. And then you have the mouth because of Hutchinson's teeth. So remember, eyes, ears, and teeth. Eyes, ears, and teeth. Okay, so if you've heard that info, 
and you're thinking, wait a minute, um, are we checking babies at delivery for this? I mean, how is this thing happening greater than two years of life? I mean, surely we're doing newborn testing. Well, yeah, we are, but it's not very good. That's why identification and treatment in the mother is key. So this information comes again from the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology from December 2022. And let's cover this issue of newborn testing right now. In a previous podcast, I covered this whole issue of reverse syphilis testing. That really is the way to go, all right? So if you remember the reverse algorithm, you kind of check first with a treponemal-specific test, like treponemal-specific antibody. And if that's positive, then you use the nonspecific, like an RPR or VDRL. You can go back to the archives and look at that. It's a pretty good episode, kind of explains it all in detail. And that's opposed to the traditional or the historic way of doing it, which is where you get a nonspecific test first, like RPR or VDRL, and then you get a confirmatory test like MHATP or fluorescent treponemal antibody absorption test, FTA-ABS, all right? So the reverse antibody test starts with a treponemal-specific test called TTs, treponemal-specific tests. But in the newborn, treponemal-specific tests can be positive because that's passive transfer of the maternal IgG antibodies, and it stays in the child for up to 15 months. See how difficult this is? So testing is not very easy in the child. All right, so direct treponemal tests for the antibody are not good because of passive transfer. So if your thought is, well, let's just do it the old-fashioned way and just get an RPR or a VDRL, the nonspecific test, called the NTTs, nonspecific treponemal tests. Well, those pretty much suck too. There's a lack of diagnostic tools for how to check a newborn. You see the nonspecific treponemal tests, the NTTs like VDRL and RPR that are currently used to check the newborn have terrible testing performance. Some studies have reported a sensitivity of a whopping 14%. And you're like, well, how is that possible? Well, that's because those are basically immunological tests and the baby is immunologically naive. It's immunologically immature. So you get a sensitivity of a whopping 14%. All to say, current neonatal treatment algorithms are still very complex and can result in delayed or misdiagnosis of congenital syphilis in an asymptomatic newborn with equivocal non-treponemal titers. One of the key challenges is adequate diagnosis and treatment in the high rate of asymptomatic congenital syphilis at birth. That's estimated to be up to 60%. Y'all see why treatment and identification of this thing in the mother is key. According to published surveillance data from the CDC, the current newborn algorithm fails to detect congenital syphilis in 5 to 10% of exposed newborns. This perfectly illustrates the challenges of identifying true infection when the fetus is at risk. Regardless of treatment strategies used at birth, current CDC guidelines still require follow-up of the exposed newborn every two to three months for up to 18 months to conclusively determine infection status by non-treponemal evaluations and exams. This adds, of course, to a public health burden, and there's a lot of loss of follow-up. Once again, do y'all get the key here? That's why identification and treatment during pregnancy is key. 
As we wrap up this podcast, remember that we're advised, we're recommended to check for syphilis three times during pregnancy on admission to prenatal care, again in the third trimester, and then at time of labor and delivery, at time of birth. It's not a one-time show. It's three times. There's three points during pregnancy that we're supposed to screen for this to try to have an impact on congenital infection. I'm thankful that Texas is organizing a women's health care consortium to tackle various issues for rural Texas, including STIs and STI treatment. So hopefully for our state, we can make a dent in this issue and other things that need attention. But we are far from there. But at least this new women's health care consortium is a good place to start. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. <sighs> Hope I wasn't on my little soapbox too much. I mean, I've seen congenital syphilis and it sucks. And in 2023 in the U.S., in this great country, we're still dealing with this thing. It's kind of sad. Anyway, I hope this information is helpful. I hope it's a good reminder about syphilis and pregnancy. And I want to say something before we launch off and, and close this episode off. Uh, thank you all for your messages. Thank you all for your great little uh, reviews that you all put on Apple and Spotify and all the other venues. We do get those. And it's so heartwarming to us. It takes a lot of time to get this data together. We got to find time to put it together. We do the research and then we make a script. And then we're seeing patients and teaching medical students and residents at the same time. It's a full-time deal. So getting those little words of encouragement that you find value in these podcasts is super, super helpful. We take that to heart. I take that to heart. Um, So thank you for those messages. All right, podcast family, we're thankful that you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.